I was the little kid who was destined to become the entrepreneur. You know, I'd get my little blue radio flyer wagon and I'd go collect uh, bottles, you know, and then turn them in and, and get two cents a piece. But I do think you've got to be conscious of the mistakes you made. And hopefully if I can share some of those with people, maybe they can just skip that part and learn from my experience. We all have to learn from each other's experiences. If we're smart, we don't want to have to make all the same mistakes everybody else did who preceded us. Welcome to the Janus Motorcycles podcast. Our kind of motorcycling is different from what you see from big brands and big bikes. We manufacture classic, simple, small displacement motorcycles because that's what we like to ride. And we're not alone. On this podcast, We talk with some of the smartest and most interesting people we know in motorcycling, design, and manufacturing. We're glad you're here. This is actually the first time that we've done an episode where we have a conversation with a guest with a new book they've just published. So uh, we don't have a whole lot of episodes out there. Uh, I think this is episode (laughs) seven, um, uh, but uh, this is a new thing for us, uh, and so we're really excited. Um, We won't spend the whole episode talking about the book, but it does serve as a nice stepping stone to the unique experiences and wisdom Mark has accumulated over the course of his life. Mark is no stranger to publishing books. He has published 12 books and literally thousands of articles on business as well as architectural engineering and construction management, including Management from A to Zweig, Human Resource Management, The Complete Guidebook for Design Firms, and my favorites, these had me laughing, Management Ideas That Work, more management ideas that work, <laughs> even more management ideas that work, not done yet, still more management ideas that work, as well as a series of new management <laughs> ideas that work. We'll talk a little bit about his latest book, Confessions of an Entrepreneur, Simple Wisdom for Starting, Building, and Running a Business, as well as how this all ties into his interests in cars, and most importantly, motorcycles. I met Mark several years back when he commissioned a new Halcyon 250. I think it's number 545. Is that right, Mark? It sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't get the number plate on mine, so I'd have to go back and look at the paperwork. Yeah. I think it's 545 or something like that. Uh, two Two years ago, I mean, after I think maybe it didn't work out the first time, but Mark invited me to speak at the Elevate AEC conference put on by his company, the Zweig Group. Unfortunately, he wasn't able to make it which I think means this is the first time um, we've spoken at least uh, face-to-face, even if it's only virtual. Uh, Mark, it is a pleasure to speak in person. Welcome to the Janus Motorcycles podcast. Hey, thanks, Richard. I've, uh, I'm tickled to be here. I have admired you from afar. You know, you're, you're fascinating to me with your architectural education and your, and your um, literature knowledge, wide-ranging knowledge. <laughs> you know, you're a Renaissance guy. And, well, uh, uh, it sounds like you had a, a similar uh, wild uh, uh, and circuitous path, let's just say, uh, to where yes. you are. So, uh, yes, I hope we'll, we'll share that uh, today, <laughs> and and maybe maybe in the process, have a great conversation around what around motorcycles. So, I think we can do that. Well, you were saying down there that it's a it's a gray day in Arkansas. Same thing up here. Yeah, we're not going to be out on the bike today. Um, although I do ride it frequently to school. Super for that. And um, right. the only the only complaint is I'm going to get that bigger seat someday. It my I think my rear end over too many <laughs> years of sitting on it has gotten too large, 
But, you know, originally I ordered the stock seat and I ordered the sprung pillion too. Because mm-hmm. I thought that was a little more classic mm-hmm. than the, the uh, pad pillion that mounts on the rack. You know, I was did, all about looks. Did you get the wide line seat or is it just the standard? No, stock I've got seat? the standard. I need the wide line. I'm going to have all to right. order one from you soon. Okay. Well, you know, but, uh, the 450 <laughs> has a really comfortable seat. So maybe I know. I, th- <laughs> <laughs> I wish that would fit on my 250. I know the answer is I need to buy a 450. <laughs> but, you know, after I, I, I my wife is not um, as enamored with my motorcycle fixation that I've had since I was 12 years old as I well, it am. Well, it sounds like I'm maybe sh- she married the wrong guy. I mean, you've had how many, tell me, how many motorcycles well, have you had? I've had like 250 or 300. Okay. (laughs) I don't even know. I used to always keep at least 10. And I think sometimes I had as many as 20 at a time. And, um, you know, I just love motorcycles. I mean, you with your architectural background and all, I mean, you you know, you appreciate things of beauty and the right motorcycle is, is just, you know, it's a work of art to me. And I think that's what you all have created there. It's such a well, unique design. Um, I, I, it's undoubtedly will be a future classic. There's no question in my mind about that. <laughs> I have a buddy who, uh, this year, I think he's gone through, not this year, <laughs> over the course of 2022, uh, I think he went through five bikes. And oh, wow. so, I mean, you can do that. You can, and, and I think he enjoyed all of them. Uh, he yeah. made his own little mark on each one of them and tuned him up and did things sure. to him. But I, he just, now he also has a Halcyon, I have to say, and he hasn't gotten rid of that one. That one sits in its own little corner, uh, but <laughs> he he uh, he likes to just uh, try new things. And so every every time he, he you know he sends me a text, it's like another bike. I'm like, oh, here it comes. <laughs> He's gonna get another one. <laughs> well, I used to be like that, and my tastes are super wide ranging. I mean, I had everything you can think of, from big Nortons to you know old Hondas to I, I rode. In fact, the longest I owned any motorcycle, um, well, the second longest, was a 1972 Kawasaki 750H2 that I built up with. Yeah, I rode that all year round in Boston. I used to go to the Yankee Beamer rides on that H2, (laughs) and they'd be like, pull a wheelie, Mark, you know? (laughs) (laughs) And I bet you They just thought it was hysterical. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, you know, and I modified it. I had a, a alloy swing arm on it and tightened up the frame and laced all new alloy rim wheels and triple disc brakes. And the thing was so fun for, to for folks that are not familiar with that bike, <laughs> just so you know, the Kawasaki H2, what, what version was it? The Mine was the first and it was the most radical 72 model Mach one. So the, yeah. the, the H2 was a triple, like a two stroke triple made by Kawasaki, essentially to be the fastest motorcycle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, they, were, they were they were lethal, <laughs> <laughs> and they didn't handle very well. <laughs> no, they were terrible. They called them widowmakers. I had one friend Oops. actually got killed on his. It was really a sad Oof. deal. But oh, uh, that's not an un- unusual story. They really were. Yeah, uh, they just no, they they, had, they were one. Fo- they were focused only on speed, and and they didn't hadn't in really a straight line <laughs> handling. <laughs> no, I, when I was in college, I drag raced. So I had I had all models of triples. I had a two fifty, a three fifty, a four hundred three 500s and then when i was well into my adulthood i got that eight that 72 h2 but wow. we used to drag race those 500 cows and if you were racing against a car 
on this drag strip, it was horrible because they made so much noise. You couldn't hear the engine on the thing, you know, but um, no, I've had wide ranging uh, motorcycling experiences in uh, like you, I had a Kawasaki Concours. That uh-huh. was, uh, you had one of those, I believe, didn't you? I did. I, and I, yeah. I, I still like that bike. I just, oh, it, yeah. it got to the point where I was like, I enjoyed the power. It was great. It was really yeah. heavy compared to what I'm used to. I think it was like exactly. still about 600 pounds, but it was, it had so many carburetors. I was always like, am I ready to, <laughs> I don't want to be the person who puts this away and it doesn't take it back out again. So I sold exactly. it. Exactly. It-, <laughs> it won't run. You'll never get it to run right again. There's so many of those old four cylinders that I, I would tell people, it's like, look, I can rebuild the carburetors five times and I, I know what I'm doing and I still can't get the damn thing to run right. I, I don't know. Yeah. Those, yeah. those Japanese fours, there's so many of them sitting around, as you said. But just like my Janus, I just put the good gas in it. And, mm-hmm. you know, we have ethanol free over here, like less than a mile from my house. So it's super convenient. And it just runs so much better with that. And it, you know, you can let it sit there for a while too. And it's going to start when you go back. That's the most important thing is you can store the bike and not have it clog up your carb. We ship all of the bikes with ethanol free just for that reason, just in case somebody doesn't ride it right away. Or if in case like shipping takes longer than you you thought it would or whatever. So yeah, that ethanol can go bad in weeks. Yeah, it really can. And it depends on how long it's been in the gas station too, before you pumped it in your bike. So but well, hey, no, Mark, I, um, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just going to say today I, I just have my Janus really. And I've got an old Benelli 250 in my library here behind me. I had a CL 350. I sold that to my son-in-law. And mm-hmm. for me at this stage in my life, the Janus is perfect. You know, it's just, I, I don't need anything more than that. As you guys say, I mean, I can go 55 down the highway here. I have no problem with that. Yep. But uh, well, I mean, you wrote one across the country. So, I mean, yeah. a little different. That's not exactly what they're designed for, but yeah, you can do it. <laughs> right. But it's just so great around town. It just feels like a big bicycle. The lightweight is unbelievably really, refreshing. That's the most helpful way I've, have, I've been able to explain to, to experienced riders when they're yeah. getting like maybe a Harley Davidson rider. When I'm, I'm like, Hey guys, when you're on this bike, just so you know, this is going to be more like riding a bicycle than it is like riding your Harley Davidson. <laughs> it is. But you know, it's got a great seating position and I don't feel cramped on it either because yeah. so many bikes I had in the past it would cramp me up and I'm not that tall or anything, but you know, either the seat jams you into the tank and mm-hmm. that's uncomfortable or you're just too bunched up and uh, the Janus, it's really comfortable. I'm not in the birthing chair position, which I think is absurd. <laughs> That's what we call those guys with the Harleys, with the highway pegs. The, the, with the forward controls. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's just super comfortable, you know? Yeah. Well, I think we can dig into some, some more of that, uh, those questions, and, and learn more about your bikes. Um, but uh, to start with, I wanted to kind of dig in um, a little bit about what I started learning about you through reading the book. Uh, give mm-hmm. us some more backstory on growing up in St. Louis in your early entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, selling bicycles on the street corner, and then I think owning a moped shop? I did later, uh, yeah, use motorcycles and mopeds um, when I was in college with a friend of mine. Uh, But uh, no, I mean, you know, it's the, I I was the little kid who was destined to become the entrepreneur, you know, (laughs) I collecting from the time I could 
walk around. And of course, back then, our parents didn't know what the hell we were doing. We were just roaming all over the neighborhood. I'd get my little yeah. blue radio flyer wagon that I won in a coloring contest at our local grocery store. <laughs> uh, uh, and I'd go collect uh, bottles, you know, and then turn them in and, and get two cents a piece. I mean, there used to be deposits on and people littered like mad. And um, uh-huh. so, yeah, I got into bicycles, you know, it's, it's it, it, like everybody else. I mean, I was the youngest of, of four children and I got the the sort of cast off bikes. And um, when I was maybe, I don't know, 10 or so um, after my AMF with a b- integrated tank light um, got, got stolen from me shortly after I got it, <clears throat> I got the Schwinn varsity from my brother, uh, Schwinn varsity 10 speed from my older brother who just retired as the dean of University of Missouri Medical School. Always a good guy. He was very generous. And, uh-huh. uh, you know, it had twin baskets on it. And I took them off. And then the next thing I did is I painted it. I had to go down to the Schwinn store and buy the genuine Schwinn purple uh, lacquer. Okay. It had a fan spray valve. Uh, it's the first experience I ever had with a spray can with a fan spray valve. And I painted mm-hmm. it purple. You know, I had to take the whole thing apart. I didn't know how to pull the chain off, so I just wrapped that up in tin foil mm-hmm. when I painted it. And um, <clears throat> anyway, you know, one thing led to another. Um, I used to go to the bike shop all the time. I'd get bikes and fix them up. You know, I'd have old three speeds that had hubs that skipped, and if you stood up on the pedals, you know, you'd kill yourself when the right. thing went ooh like that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, anything I could take apart and paint and put back together and put new decals on, you know, I'd contact the manufacturers. And so I used to go to this little bike shop that was about three or four blocks from my house. It was underneath an optician shop. And so one day my dad says to me, he's like, you know, you should go down there and tell them. Uh, that uh, you'd like to work there and you'll work for free for a month. And if they like you at the end of that, they can pay you a buck an hour. And so I Quite went down pinch. there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> one of the few times I listened to my father, he, he didn't always have great <laughs> advice, um, which uh, actually got me into my second wife, which I won't get into uh, here, okay. but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've had nearly as many spouses as I have motorcycles. No, I'm I'm only on number three, <laughs> and and my wife always reminds me um, that I'm her number two. But uh, mm-hmm. but so I went down to the bike shop. I did what he told me, and they said, "Yeah, you're you know." Well, they knew me. You know, they said, "You're hard. Start right now." So I started. Um, they they didn't. They said, "You don't have to work for free. We'll pay you a buck an hour." right off the bat. And, um, then they gave me a dollar 25 at the end of 30 days. And I was really thought I was something, mm-hmm. but that's where I started my, my boss there. Well, it was a husband wife team. He worked as a mechanic at the local Dodge dealer. She ran the business. He was a Hodaka freak. Okay, and we yeah. had a franchise to sell Bridgestone motorcycles besides bicycles. We sold Bridgestone which I love, by the way, I've had several of those 350 GTOs mm-hmm. and GTRs. I have a friend with one of those. Yeah. Oh, they're, they're fantastic motorcycles. Everybody thinks which, that Bridgestone makes tires. Only. Yeah. They didn't realize they made motorcycles. <laughs> I, I, what I heard was that the other Japanese bike makers went to him and said, you got, you want to sell us tires or you want to compete with us? Mm. And so they had to pull the plug on their bikes, but their bikes were awesome. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that three fifty fan base of those bridge uh, Bridgestones, yeah, yeah. The last one I sold, I I I, th- I can't remember. I think it went to Norway, but uh, yeah, I had a three fifty Scrambler I redid. But um, anyway, so that you know that was a nice place for me to work. I worked there like you know, I I'd go home from school. I'd go. I had to, you know, put the breakfast dishes away and pop the chicken in the oven. Then I'd ride my bike down to the bike shop. I worked there till about five thirty. Then I'd go home, eat dinner. Then I'd go back there and work till nine or ten o'clock at night because the boss came in every night, <laughs> and he and I would work together. And you know, it it really is. So just from bikes, I went to motorcycles. I got my first Sears mini bike when I was twelve. And then I got a Honda C100, which is a 50cc step through, you know, that they sold like 28 million of in Vietnam um, mm-hmm. alone. Um, I got one of those. I paid, uh, I think it was 13 or $14 for it. And it was all, you know, it had a lot of problems, leaked a lot of oil. The transmission was kind of wonky. And of course, I painted it up. I sold it for 65 bucks, you know. In uh, <laughs> I, I bought a Sears 106. I had no idea what it was, which is a Jalera. Yep. And it was leaning up against the inside of this garage that had no doors on it on an old two family, two doors away from me. And I just used to ride my bike past it on the way to the bike shop. And I saw it in there for years. So finally I got up the nerve to go knock on the door and they said, Oh, that's the landlord. You got to talk to him. And I remember the guy's name was Enrique Ramos. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, I want to buy that bike. He's like, yeah, somebody left it there. I, I said, I'll give you 10 bucks for it. He said, fine, just go get it. And, you know, you can leave 10 bucks in an envelope and wherever it was. So I go down there, I get the bike, I bring it home. It's super rusty. I mean, it's unbelievably, those bikes rusted out before they were sold. I mean, yeah. they had the worst chrome plating of anything you've ever seen, Richard, <laughs> which is one of the reasons I like Janus. It doesn't rust. You know, yep. you've got stainless and powder coating. And, and Not a whole lot of chrome on them. No, there's very little chrome on them. But anyway, the uh, <clears throat> so I dragged the thing home. It's super rusty. So I said to the, I called the guy back. I said, you know what? I, I'm going to change my mind. I'll give you five bucks for it. And he said, okay. So I still have the bill of sale. Um, where he sold me that bike for five bucks. But I mean, Richard, I put gas in the thing. I ordered a parts catalog from Sears. You could buy anything you wanted from Sears for those bikes. It was like, you want a blue gas tank? You want a red gas tank? You want a black gas tank? They had them all. Hmm. And uh, I fixed that thing up. And all uh, (laughs) pre-internet. Yeah, it was always like, I know a guy, you know, with the old cars, it's like, I know a guy who's got some 1950 Ford parts, you know, but you know, you could never get a hold of him, but I think he lives in South St. Louis somewhere. Let's drive around and see, you know, (laughs) it was so much harder, but but, but uh, also more memorable (laughs) and a real experience in a way. Yeah. You know, nobody remembers clicking buy now on eBay or whatever, Amazon. <laughs> no, they don't, but it sure makes some of these restorations easier. I'll say yeah, that. I bet it does. You know, yeah. um, it was kind of, uh, on a, on a side note, I remember I was redoing an old Pook Twingle, you know, the mm-hmm. two cylinders that on oh, yeah. one connecting rod deal they had and, uh, or one, uh, I guess there were two rods, but I, I, no, it was one connecting rod. So it went it wide out. But anyway, um, I found this company up in Wisconsin 
in, uh, I can't remember the name of them now, but it was just when the internet was starting out um, and they had five employees and they made reproduction pook parts and they had a lot of new old really? stock too. Yeah. And I thought, I, I, know, my, I, I know my pook uh, people pretty well and I've never, I, I didn't know anything about Wisconsin. Huh? Yeah. There's a company up to, well, there was 30 years ago, 30 years ago. Yeah. And, huh. and uh, you know, I just thought, wow, this is fantastic. You know, these guys, they live in a small town They've got this focus, this niche that they pursue, and they've got five employees and they're making a living off of it, you know, really impressed me. Yeah. But uh, anyway, you know, one thing led to another and I, you know, when I was in high school, I always had, you know, two cars and three bikes at a time, you know, something like that. And, uh, or three cars and a couple bikes, you had to have a dirt bike and a street bike, of course. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just, one thing led to another. I was into all types of motorcycle racing worked for a bunch of different bike shop owners. And by the time I was a senior in high school, I was making six or $700 a week, which was unheard of, you know, in 1975. Um, Mm -hmm. My first job offer out of school with an undergrad degree in 79 was 8,800 a year. And I'm like, whoa, you know? And then when I got my MBA, I started at 12,000. So I was making more money as a 17 year old um, and then buying and selling on the side and, yeah. Anyway, then when I got to college, you know, this all continued. And of course, your circle of friends is other people who are into stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had this one kind of crazy finance professor. And um, he lived in a house um, out in the country and he never closed his windows. Uh, that's what I remember. The curtains would just be fluttering. Didn't matter winter, summer, anything. And he had a Mercedes SL that was fairly new and he left the top down all year round. It just rotted inside, you know, (laughs) (laughs) this guy was a character. His PhD was decoupage to his toilet seat because he thought that was sort of symbolic on what he thought it was worth. And so he's the one, he and my friend, Frank Galante, who also had a 72 H2, um, we went in this motorcycle business. He had an old Veach oil station, which he let us have for nothing. And, um, he put the cash up and then we split the profits every month, three ways. And, uh, so and this you is know, while we, you're in school, this is while I was in school. Yeah. Toward the end in the undergrad and through grad school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so we bought all the bikes that the dealers didn't want. You know, we called that skid row. They'd be like, there's an old 750 Honda back there with ape hangers on it. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you, you could get that cheap, you know? Yeah. So we bought those and, uh, anything they didn't want to sell, we fix it up and sold it. And then we got this Indian moped franchise. Mm-hmm. which back then all it meant you had to do was buy like three Indian mopeds. And those they, were four strokes. They weren't two strokes, right? They, I don't even, I thought they were two, uh, two strokes. Uh, I think, well, maybe the ones in the seventies. I just these, remember these, we used to get some of those in and I, I was never a huge fan of them because they <laughs> oh, were they're terrible, terrible I, compared to the two strokes. We, we, yeah, we didn't sell many of them. I just remember pulling one out of the box and the crankcase was broken where the kickstart lever came out. I was like, not yeah. too impressed with the quality, but, uh, <laughs> I wasn't really into those, you know, we just, we had that, we got a sign that we could put illuminated from them that we could stick on the inside window of our 
gas that was, station. Wasn't that like a Floyd Clymer uh, business? Endeavor. He, I, it may have I been. Think, yeah, it may it have was. been. Yeah. But, Clymer uh, of Clymer manuals. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember them well. So mm-hmm. anyway, that got, got me kind of going in it. And, uh, you know, over the years, after all my professional jobs and everything, I just never got out of bikes entirely. I always yeah. had something sitting huh. in the garage and my first wife was a speed freak. So she loved to ride on bikes. You know, nice. she and I rode up the, the tip of Prince Edward Island on that new ZG 1000 when we got it, that would have been in the sort of late mid to late nineties. And, uh, I mean, Richard, the speeds that we maintained, I swear <laughs> up in Canada, there were no cars. I mean, there's nobody on the highway. We were running 120 miles an hour, two up for like, you know, extended just, periods just of don't, time. Don't, I hope you don't run into a moose. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it was stupid. You know, <laughs> it truly was. One night we had a little crash on the way out to dinner in Boston. And uh, we lived in the suburbs and I was following this hay truck. It was a truck towing a trailer full of hay. And I decided to just, you know, you know how fast those things are. I decided I was going to go around him. Well, as soon as I did, he turned left. Oh no! And uh, you know, I locked it up, and and at about two miles an hour, it just caught the front wheel and just flipped us over. So we rode the bike home. It was still rideable, and um, just scratched up, and uh, so changed clothes and went out to to the to the uh, really nice restaurant in Boston, and I pulled my jacket off. I got hot and had this giant patch of red blood. Blood stain. From road rash. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, you talked a little bit about your, uh, this stuff happening. You had this mo- motorcycle, used motorcycle shop. You're in school. Yeah. yeah. You, you, in the book, you talk about how as a child, you were used, you liked drawing on graph paper, which I can identify yep. with, um, and then building your designs in Lego and then kind of thinking mm-hmm. that you were interested in architecture, yep. but then going for an MBA rather than architecture. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I just got seduced away by the world of business. That's what I always say. You know, I love design. It was my first interest really. Um, but you know, working in those bike shops and then all the buying and mm-hmm. selling and everything, I just got to where I made so much money that um, business was my my track. But fortunately for me, after I got my MBA in 1980, I got hired by a consulting firm that served the construction and real estate development industries and also occasionally architects and engineers. And so I gravitated to the AE side. I found that the people were a little bit sharper and a little more ethical. Mm-hmm. And I just enjoyed them. And, um, so that was the genesis of my, uh, you know, entire career from 1980 on, which has been in the, um, architecture and engineering industry in some way. So Hmm. I sort of wedded the two together. And then, you know, in 2005, we started our own design build development company after the first time I sold my company to a private equity firm and, uh, which turned out to be a disaster, but I mean, we got our money out of it, but ended up having to buy the firm back some years after that. But, um, so we started this design build firm and, uh, I did everything. I designed every single thing. I had houses where I even picked out, um, I even did the art on the walls. 
and I'm not mm-hmm. a very good painter, but I, you know, nothing was, but you actually painted me. it. You didn't just select yeah. it. You. Oh yeah. I painted it, <laughs> but you know, I bought dishes. I designed the furniture. We made the furniture. I mean, these were complete redos. Um, people would say, Oh, you flip houses. I'm like, if I buy it for 200 and I sell it for a million too, that's not a flip, you yeah. know, that's a, that's an entire reconstruction. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so I was able to, you know, work with these designers and, and, uh, and business owners. And, uh, then also had a chance to do a lot of it myself. I mean, we did more houses in downtown Fayetteville than anybody else and still, hmm. you know, hold that. I'm sure we've probably redid two or three times as many as the next, um, nearest competitor here. Hmm. So, but from, from your interest in, in draw and in, in design and yep. architecture, and then like, can you draw any kind of connections between that and your love of vehicles? And I mean, cause you're not interested just in mo- motorcycles. You like cars <laughs> no. too. No, I do. I've the, it's been an illness and it culminated in a $50,000 loss on my last used um, old Rolls Royce I owned, which I will not be doing again. Um, <laughs> but uh, that was your no, daily I'm, driver. Yeah, it was. It was my, it was a one of 70 99 silver spur, which they don't, if you look them up, they say they stopped making them in 98, but mine was British racing green, which I just, as soon as I see green, I just fall in love with it. You know, it just does something totally irrational to me. <laughs> and so I overpaid for it. And uh, it also was turbocharged, which is kind of cool. I didn't even yeah. know they were put turbos on those Rolls. But uh, anyway, it turned out to be a bad decision. But um, so, yeah, the, the integration of all those things. I mean, you know, I like design professionals because they are creative. And I think they do a lot for our society that people don't fully appreciate. And uh, mm-hmm. like yourself, uh, you know, I'm a fan of classical architecture and I was into contextual design. So I like to take, I want to redo my houses so they look like they could have been there forever, mm-hmm. but they're just super well-maintained. And um, that was sort of my aesthetic. But, you know, whether you're talking about redoing a house, a car, a motorcycle or a business, you know, there's yeah. a lot of parallels, you know. You got to kind of figure out what you got first and then you just have to map out a plan and you knock it off a piece at a time. And, uh, you do, you, you try to do something that is nobody else has done before. That's Mm -hmm. different. And if you can do that, then not everybody's going to like it, but somebody's really going to like it. It's kind of like the way you guys, you know, (laughs) Mm-hmm. So kind you of, talked a little, little bit there about classical architecture and and mm-hmm. what you said you described as contextual design. Yeah, you know, you've you've been in the industry long enough that you've seen. I mean, there, probably when you were in school, there was no classical architecture really contemporarily happening around you. No, have you have you been? What's been in your experience, kind of seeing the rebirth of that? I think it's great. Um, I mean, I don't. I appreciate good modern too. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. so it's not the only thing that I'm into. Mm-hmm. I just don't like bad modern, which I see a lot of. You know, it's like, let's throw four kinds of materials on the facade here for no reason at all. I mean, that kind of stuff drives me crazy. Down here in Arkansas, it's like corrugated metal. That's good. Let's use that everywhere. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so, I, I mean, I 
I, I just like, I don't think that the architecture should scream, look at me. It should fit into a hole, you know, mm-hmm. and that hole. Well, that's should interesting. Be you say pleasant. you like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it says you say you like good modern. And, yeah. And it's such a hard, I mean, for people, especially maybe our viewership here, you know, like mm-hmm. even understanding what classical architecture is, or, I mean, a lot of people think columns, you know, yeah, right. not necessarily columns on, class, <laughs> you know, classical or at least traditional architecture. No. Um, but like, I think it's really telling what you said about like architecture that screams, look at me. I think that's maybe uh, the best way of describing bad modern architecture. Yeah. <laughs> or a good way of describing good modern architecture is architecture that does fit in yeah. with, to its surroundings. It, you know, I, I think a lot of it, it's just, I mean, you know, you've got your architectural education and, and now you went to Notre Dame, which is a little different from to say the a least. lot of schools. Um, I think that's where the Driehaus prize originated, isn't it? Yeah, it is. is yeah. I've been to a couple of those, uh, which are pretty neat. I think you mentioned that you you work with, um, or you're, uh, affiliated with Peter Penoyer. Yes. I feel like maybe I met somebody from them or even saw him there at one of those Driehaus awards. You, you, you probably did. Uh, yeah. because they all, um, interned under Bob Stern and he was their professor. And mm-hmm. so Bob won the award and Peter's still very close to him. So that might've been one that you went to. And just for uh, everybody so. to be aware of the Driehaus award, if we're really getting into the weeds, uh, is, a <laughs> is the, it's like the, the top kind of traditional classical architecture award, um, put on by the, by uh, a recently deceased, um, wealthy Chicago, uh, philanthropist, um, Richard Driehaus. And it's kind of where all these people that are interested in this kind of architecture that whether it's classical with columns or traditional with that fits in or, or both, it's a different kind of thing that really in the 19, like, like my father's probably your age or maybe a little older. And he, when he was in school, there, there was no, you couldn't study that. And you're actually discouraged yeah. actively from doing anything that looked like it wasn't modern. That's uh, what I, I was going to say. You know, I think the architectural schools are training these people <clears throat> to think that if they don't do something different, mm-hmm. that's shocking that they yep. failed. Um, I taught over there for a couple years at the Faye Jones School here as an adjunct, and I taught a course called Everything They Don't Usually Teach You in Architectural School really? to fifth-year students. And it's, I had this one kid, and, and you know, one day he sort of tore into me, like, you know, that I wasn't any good at what I did because I wasn't breaking any new ground at all, you know, and mm-hmm. he was very disparaging of the... <laughs> Of the work that we did, you know. Anyway, it was just kind of funny. But you're right. I mean, it, it, it's it's just it's not it's not what most architects are into. But um, but that's but I think you it's, know, it's telling to to think to study that because yeah. Uh, typically, when you look at the the people that are that live in the in the town or the city where things are being built, if you actually ask them what they prefer, yeah. It's, almost 100% of the time, the traditional, it is, or at least it's the building that looks like what it is, right? Like if you're building a museum, it looks like a museum or you're building a train station. It looks like a train station. And there are things that define what those look like. Um, Yes. Pretty, very easy to understand that our church looks like a church or whatever. A house looks like a house. Um, And uh, it, 
there, there is all this, there's so much potential for ingenuity and invention within it, exactly the, within these the bounds fairly yeah the bounds <laughs> that, that actually help us understand the way we exist and uh, to kind of carry that over to what we're doing like and, and maybe with the way i view the the automotive especially maybe the motorcycle industry is mm-hmm. it's this competition with everybody around you to, to be different exactly like you're saying it's to to be revolutionary or and instead of of like remembering the reason we're all that that, that your customer gets yep. on it, swings their leg over that bike in the morning or you know there's an experience they're looking for and it doesn't necessarily have to be one that's completely different every bike they ride yeah <laughs> or every yeah. model year <laughs> you know it, it it i mean in a way it's nostalgia but you know what that's what's so great about what you guys do is, you know, I can ride my Janus. I can go out there. I know it's going to start, you know. Mm-hmm. Nobody else has one here in town, so it's completely unique. I could ride old bikes, and, you know, what you get with that, I mean, they don't handle that good. The brakes are lousy. They're not running right. They're leaking oil. You know, they don't shift good. I mean, and then you know, but it's cool. But, 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 but I mean, even, even on, a, you know. on, a, on like a bike that's well set up, like an old bike. I mean, there were some great right. historic bikes. Sure. To, to keep that on the road today is very expensive and very time consuming um, yes. because just finding parts for it is, is difficult. Oh. So I always, I, I say our bikes, we really aren't inventing anything new and, and maybe they aren't as good as a bike in some ways from the 1950s, but it's, it's, it's trying to get to that thing like that traditional feeling. architecture, like that, like traditional architecture does where it's like, yeah. this is answering something in human nature. <laughs> it, it, the old way of seeing, if you ever read that book, no, a lot of architects, that and the architectural pattern, the pattern language, um, that's Charles, another Charles, one. Uh, Ale- Christopher Alexander. Yeah. yeah. That, but, uh, like that one. but no, you're, you're right. I mean, you, you've got the, that's what you get, but I think you get the best of that. And the good thing about you guys is you didn't just copy something else. I mean, it looks like it's old. It looks different. It looks mm-hmm. like it could have come out of the twenties or whatever. But then on the other hand, um, it's not a copy of anything. You have your unique style and then you, well, it's interesting. You know, we're talking about, uh, architecture. I mean, it really, I think, I mean, obviously this is very, uh, overt for me because I'm coming from I literally founded Janus the year after I, the same year I graduated yeah. with a classical architecture degree and that's pretty crazy the, the it's it, there, there's a vocabulary mm-hmm. and a lot of times people say oh if you use you know like let's say like strict classical like you're doing an, an ionic temple or, or an ionic building right. it's like where is the room for invention in that right and and that's kind of the same I mean, you could say the same thing about motorcycles. It's like, well, it just looks like an old bike. And you're like, well, it's not a recreation. There's so much. If you, you, you're you using a vocabulary which has which is very deep. And it exactly. has the ability to answer things where if you just go out and not to knock on modern a modern architect, but like sometimes they're just an expression of that architect's individuality. Yes. And if you start from that kind of tabula rasa blank mm-hmm. canvas – you're starting from scratch rather than building on the 3000 year history of 
architecture. Now we don't have a three thousand year history of motorcycles, but we do have a pretty, yeah. you know, one hundred and twenty years maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, it's just like the common. I mean, no bike had a tank like that, and then a leading link front end. I mean, yeah. you know, it just nobody did that. Nobody had a leading link with a hardtail. I mean, you know, so. Yeah, I think you, you you sort of put it all together, but you came up with something unique. But, you know, what I like about it, again, I mean, it shifts good. The clutch is feels like a Japanese bike. You know, I mean, just mm-hmm. the brakes are decent on it. it. It's just nice having something that works, too. You know, when I come home at night, my headlight's not so dim that you know those old bikes what does it dim when you slow down <laughs> yeah i had some triumphs where i mean i had one where the headlight used to just fall out of it all the time eventually i just strapped uh one of those six volt rayovac lanterns onto the bars mm-hmm. because there was you know <laughs> so it's just nice you know having something you can actually ride and then you know at some point when i decide i'm not going to ride it I can throw it in here in the library, sitting next to this Benelli, and it'll be a nice object of art. You know, I think a lot of I think a lot of Janus bikes spend their winter uh, in people's living rooms or sometimes yeah. maybe you know, kitchens. I love decorating but, with motorcycles. I think it's wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, let's let's uh, let's a couple of qu- more questions about your. We can. Well, this is a rambling conversation, just the way they should be. But um, I wanted to, to just bring it back to your to um, your book a little bit and. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll be honest, as a undergrad literature major and a graduate architectural student, uh, uh, how-to books and business how-to books are sort of, I just have never been able to really uh, enjoy them. Uh, I'm trying, I'm doing better at it, uh, especially being a, I I don't, not having an MBA and trying to run a business, I've I've realized that (laughs) I may have already gotten that in the last 10 years at some point, but um, that education, that experience is a valuable education. There's no doubt about it. (laughs) But one thing that, that, that struck me about your book is really just how simple you make it sound. And I don't mean that in the sense that like you're, uh, you're tricking people. It's just like you lay it out very, very simply. What, what were you really trying to do with the book? Is that some sort of an aspect of that? That is. I mean, I'm really, um, I hate to say passionate because it's a cliche these days. Yeah. Um, but I'm passionate about this idea that entrepreneurship is available to anybody. Yeah. And that's one of the greatest aspects of it. Any age, any sex, any background, anybody can do it. It's stuff. It's just not, you know, it's not brain surgery or rocket science to use a couple more cliches. Yeah. It's anybody can do it. And, um, and I do think it is one of the problems with entrepreneurship education today. Um, we're sort of training people to think, well, you've got to invent something new, which you don't. You can go into a mature industry with a proven market. Um, that's, you know, people eat a lot of pizza. I don't have to invent some new, <laughs> you know. So that's one thing. And then, you know, Secondly, I don't have, even have to start a business from scratch. There may be one I could buy or you could buy that allows you to get in. It's easier to finance. It's got customers. It's got employees. It's got something yeah. to work with. It's got a history. Um, you know, and then, you know, the, the, the next idea is then we've got to go out and raise capital. And that's the other thing I, I feel all these create significant barriers to people 
mm-hmm. you know, um, to going into business for themselves. And I, I want to tear those barriers down if I can. I, I mean, very few businesses raise equity capital at startup. I mean, that's just super rare. Yeah. And it always seemed kind of dumb to me because it's like, I want to do my own thing, but the first thing I'm going to do is go sell my company to somebody else who now has control over it and it's telling me what yeah. to do, you know, uh-huh. kind of defeats Get the it. purpose. <laughs> That's really interesting. That's really interesting. And, and there are some businesses that are more uh, capable of, you know, that are not as capital intensive, let's yeah. say. Um, you aren't in uh, one of the them. Others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not in one of them. We've been really lucky, you. honestly, to how little we have, but- Take an investment overall in terms of, but uh, yeah, it's not. <laughs> Manufacturing, it's, it's capital intense. I mean, I've got a friend here who owns a candle company, does $85 million a year in sales, you know, and he's mm. constantly upgrading, And but he's in it for the long game, you know? Mm-hmm. He's had a million opportunities to sell. He just loves it. He just keeps improving his process and creating a better company and relishing in his long-term it's, employees, you know? It's interesting to see, to compare that with, and I know you, you know, a lot of part of um, your, the, is it Zwei Groups? You know, yes. their whole thing was helping businesses, you know, not only excel, but plan for succession. And, yes, you know, and some people that's, and, and probably most people, many people, we all need to at least be planning for that, but it's interesting to see those businesses that I was reading, listening to a podcast um, uh, last week about uh, uh, Brunello Cuccinelli, the Italian mm-hmm. designer, uh, yep. fashion designer. Yep. Uh, and he's, that was his business. He's still, he's still there. And he's made it this, like his whole thing that he does is, is he's created a business that re- has rebuilt this little village in Italy. And so he's even like, you know, created the lives of this whole community. And that's what his life goal is. Yeah. You lived over there for a while when you were in school, didn't you? Or were you interned over there? Or? Yeah. I, I was able to study over there for um, two or three semesters, uh-huh. one in undergrad and then again in grad school. And then I spent uh, a summer interning with an architect in Genoa, which is a not like a big tourist city. Um, yeah. But so it's you a really, a- really beautiful one. But yeah, I got to real Vespa. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My friend, Frank Galanti, his family owned an organ company and, uh, he had a lot of relatives in Italy. He used to go over there every summer for like a month. And he always, you know, everybody has a scooter. It's like, you got a car and you got a scooter mm-hmm. and, um, he, he loved it over there. But, uh, yeah, that, 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 uh, the experience of being over there mm-hmm. and of how they use, uh, scooters and motorcycles was definitely kind of formative for me. It's a, it's a different way of, of, of doing things. So here in the States, it's primarily a leisure activity yes. to, to, to ride. And, and it's not something we commute on, but it's Some different of in us Italy. And, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I, I do, but it's still like, it's a choice I make. Right. Rather yeah. than the way everybody does it, you know? I, I don't put so. that many miles on my bike, but I mean, like going to school, it's just so much more convenient. I can park right up next to the building and I don't have to pay for it. And um, that just, you know, that's a real draw for me, you know, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. get on that yeah. little bike and just ride over there. I mean, it's perfect for that. I go to the store, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. 
but uh, yeah. but anyway, back on entrepreneurship as as a topic. I mean, so yeah, I I think it's something that is available to everyone. I do believe that um, you know small businesses are our future. I mean, ninety plus percent of businesses are actually family businesses, which is really crazy. Small businesses make up like 70% of the employment, something on that order. And they also create more new jobs than big companies. And they're also more innovative because they don't have that bureaucracy to fight through. You know, most of the innovation comes out of the small guys, even though the big guys spend tons of money on it. They don't seem like they can implement it. It does seem like it can be very stiltifying. And I think a lot of the, I talk about this a lot, but, uh, you know, the halcyon concept yeah is 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 something that was completely uh if we had done proper market research we would have launched what we planned to do was our phoenix cafe Mm -hmm. racer because that was right in the height of well maybe the end of but still the height of cafe racer craze in 2010 and 11 and i still like those oh yeah they're great but we we we've sold over a thousand housing or well yeah, total housing yeah. models. Uh, sure, over a thousand. We sold. We discontinued the Phoenix last year. We I know. Sold I saw seventy nine of them. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? I, 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 it's hard to understand. It is really interesting, and, and I guess the point I'm making with that is that it was sort of a whim mm-hmm. that I drew up this Halcyon concept, and and and, and I, if I was operating in a larger yeah. structure with with shareholders at that point. It would never have gotten off the ground. Yeah, the market research would say, "Oh, you don't want a 1920s looking hardtail." I mean, right. what's that yeah, about? No one wants a hardtail. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's it, that's I love that, and it's great that you can make that move um, so quickly. Um, I think it's a real leap to have that 450 out. I mean, that's a motorcycle mm-hmm. that really you can do anything you want to do on. And, and we uh, have put, we did put a lot of, you know, research into that bike and a lot of customer, mm-hmm. we, we did a customer survey now, it's many years now back that, and, and learned what people were looking for. And then also just getting it in front of people, talking to yeah. Jay Leno, you know, Jay Leno's uh, uh, comments on the bike really were influential in our, in our move to the 450. So, um, yeah, but I think you're absolutely right about like the, the, the family, the small, the, 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 the future is in that kind of smaller, yes. uh, scale because it does have that flexibility and it can be something that isn't just like vanilla. (laughs) Right. Yeah. You you don't have to have tons of market research. You can just do it. Mm -hmm. You know, and the other thing I think about these small businesses is they're better places for people to work. Now, you know, you could argue that big companies pay people better, which they generally do. There's data to support that. Um, But the employment experience is so much more intimate in a small company. Um, Mm -hmm. They know you, you're not a number, Um, you know, uh, you get a wider ranging job uh, set of responsibilities because, you know, everybody's got to pitch in and do stuff that maybe is not in their quote job description. Mm -hmm. That's good for you. You get Mm -hmm. pushed into roles that you're not necessarily familiar with, which is how you learn. Um, Yep. So, you know, I think these small companies really provide a more satisfying, uh, at least well-run small companies, uh, job mm-hmm. experience for people than mm-hmm. the larger businesses do. That's absolutely been in our experience. I mean, just, you know, you, uh, small businesses don't, can't always compete on the salary level. 
but they right. can and we can't necessarily. I mean, we're getting better at it now as we sure. as we kind of get some more experience and under our belt. But we we, we can offer our our employees is an experience this incredible work experience where they can thrive and it's more like a it's a community where you can sure. really enjoy your life compared to working on like out here we have the rv industry and the factory yeah. line and you can make a lot of money i'm but you sure can also just uh drive you know it's not a it's not necessarily uh the best way to live your life <laughs> no you guys have work-life integration you live in that small town right. and it's affordable and then you don't have to drive a long way or fight traffic to get there. And then you get to your cool little old building in town and everybody mm-hmm. gets to work on something cool. And then on top of it, the business itself is growing. So there's a lot of excitement, you know, that you can create. And um, I just, I think it's great work life integration. You've got a perfect mm-hmm. situation there <laughs> um, really in a lot of ways that, uh, that I think uh, it's unusual. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it's deliberate. I mean, I, I know you didn't stumble on that. I mean, it's a deliberate effort to create that kind of environment. Yeah. And, and, and it, and it, you know, we do kind of, it is kind of the way that it's just happened too. like, you know, being small and, you know, we are, we do have the kind of an underdog kind of quality, which we do lean into. Um, but it's, it's kind of been, just the nature of starting in the back of an old building and gradually taking it over yep. know, more and more of it. Uh, it, it, it kind of, it's just kind of grown that way. Um, and it's a, it's a great story. It's, it's fun to see it. It's fun to see it mature and, and try and engineer or design how you grow and how you can retain some of that. Uh, Absolutely. So you, it'll you be can do to see it. how we grow look and look as we get larger, how we can kind of, continue to, to maintain that. Well, you and I can talk some more about that because it is possible, but you're right to be sensitive to it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's for darn sure. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, it's funny cause I started Zwei group same way. I had one room, then I had two, then I had four in this old building and uh, it was just the same kind of story in a way. And uh, it was, it was great. It was a lot of good memories about that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah. but yeah, I can't wait to see what you guys do next. You know, I think this 450 is a huge leap. I don't know what all your plans are for any other variations of that or other mm-hmm. machines that you will create, but I'm sure there's some good stuff. Coming. Lots of good stuff in the, in the works, uh, mm-hmm. right now are, we're just focusing on now that we've made it through the pandemic, <laughs> fine <laughs> yeah. by the skin of our teeth, uh, just kind of stream, you know, getting everything smoothed out. Um, and, and then, then we'll, then we'll worry about that, but, uh, making sure that the product is up to the standard and everybody, uh, customers and really just kind of getting better at what we do, maybe getting better at telling the story. Um, that's part of this podcast is trying to talk about what we're doing. And, 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 and honestly, the best thing about these podcasts is what I learn from people. I mean, if no one were to watch this, it really wouldn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> because I, I, I learned well, so much and, and, uh, I appreciate everybody who comes on. <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate being on here and, uh, you know, I, I think so I, of course I'm an advocate for you guys and, um, I just, 
I, I want to see more experienced motorcyclists buying uh, these bikes because I think it would help round out their fleet and they'll mm-hmm. appreciate what you've done here. I'm not sure all the newbies totally appreciate it. And it sounds yep. strange to say, but because they don't have any other motorcycle experience, so they don't know mm-hmm. what other motorcycles are necessarily like, you know, mm-hmm. but the experienced rider, the the multi-bike owner, man, having one of those as, as a part of your collection, um, it, it's perfect for that. And I mm-hmm. think there's a big market out there. There's a lot of multi-bike owner types like me, you know, who've been out there for a million years and, um, and, and can afford to have some bikes laying around if they want, because their families are all grown and out of the house. Now, in my case, I still have an 11 year old. So, you know, I, I kept <laughs> me too. kids. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a little older than you, man. I just got my <laughs> Medicare card in the mail last week. So, uh, <laughs> well, uh, before, I think we're we're getting we're, in, we're almost an hour in here, um, but I wanted to a couple more things I wanted to cover while we're while we have you. Um, sure. In the second part of your book, mm-hmm. and this this really comes right off of what we're talking about. Uh, you, you have a section titled "Keeping Your Priorities Straight," and yep. you mentioned the phrase I think many times in that section. Quote, you know, inner peace. Um, yep. For for example, you say. I've learned that there are some practical things you can do to straighten out your priorities, get off the merry-go-round and find some of that elusive inner peace. Uh, it sort of sounds like you've found out the hard way and very found that out the hard way and v- value it highly. What, what, it, what do you, what do you mean by that? What is that inner peace? The inner peace just comes from reducing complexity in your life. You know, for somebody like me who had all these businesses and things going at the same time and teaching and boards and, too many kids and too many ex-wives, mm-hmm. um, it, 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 too many cars, too many motorcycles, you know, mm-hmm. here I'm sitting there saying you should have another motorcycle and now I'm contradicting myself. But, but, uh, but, but your point more is not necessarily better with a motorcycle. I mean, having right. three bikes is different than having 300. Ex- yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I t- yeah, that's, that's the truth. But just the simplification, you know, it's just like we got off the real estate merry-go-round over the last four or five years. And it was a conscious decision. My wife did not like running the business. Um, She felt uh, it's very sexist. She didn't appreciate how the subcontractors treated her, Um, you know, and then there's just a million quality problems and dealing with the city and other stresses. Anyway, she wanted to get out of it. Leaking roofs Mm -hmm. on commercial buildings. You know, mm-hmm. that, so she wanted to get out of it. I wanted to get out of it. So the bottom line is we had $22 million worth of investment property. And, uh, I think it was, it was either 50. Well, at our peak, we actually had 67 doors, but I think we had 57 doors of residential and about 44,000 square feet of commercial. when we decided we we're just going to start selling everything off. And, you know, we would have made more money if we'd have waited another year or two. But I mean, when COVID hit, I was like, holy cow, we've got these $600,000 two bedroom condos we're never going to be able to get rid of. And um, Mm -hmm. I started panicking. Um, And so we just sold all that. We we just got a contract yesterday on the last commercial building we have, which is a 21,000 square foot um, multi-tenant office retail building. 
And hopefully that'll close in about three or four months. We're taking a second on it, which is a little risky, but I think I've mitigated that with some provisions in the contract and all. But yeah, just (laughs) simplification. Just every time I cut something out, I am thrilled that I did. I mean, you know, it goes back to even when I was growing my business, if I had a bad client that took too much mental energy, that was a pain to deal with, I would just say, we just can't help you, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. And, and, and then, you know, shedding the businesses, I, the Zwei group, I sold that back to the company, um, on an internal sale on a long-term deal for 15 years. That's not the way to get the most money out of your company, but it is the way to maintain. If you've got a good crew back there and they know what they're doing and you've trained your successor, well, you know, mm-hmm. they're going to keep it going and make it better. And, um, and so, you know, that relieves stress. I mean, just anything you can do. I mean, even down to like pulling social media apps off your phone so you don't look at them when you're not doing anything. One other thing you mentioned, yeah. you know, like obviously simplifying is 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 a huge. You're emphasizing that, but you also emphasize in, in the in the book like uh, doing something tangible yes. with your hands. Yes, um, it's a human need. How does that play in? I mean, like, let's say, and also maybe you're, you know, you're, you're obviously at a different stage in your life where you can afford to simplify and, 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 and get, get out of a business. But maybe if you're younger, yeah. you still have to make money. Sure. Um, you got to have a job. What, what are, what are, how does that, that tangible doing something with your hands tie into that? I, I think it's, um, well, I mean, aside from the fact that it is something you can bring your children into. It's mm-hmm. just gratifying to do something tangible. If you do intangible stuff all day, you know, I remember Jay Leno said to you in 2020, I like guys who make things, you know, <laughs> I, I just distinctly remember that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it, you know, just making something and seeing it there um, is a stress reduction. I think people don't realize <clears throat> some people, how important those hobbies are. They're so busy. So you, you know, said hobbies there. So yeah. like your main job may be something that's less tangible. Right. But there are other things you can do that are that are tangible, even if it's like fixing the back door or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, as I freed up my time, I started getting back into doing stuff that I before I always hired people to do, whether it's like, you know, maintaining our yard or cutting trees down or, you know, as you say, fixing the toilet, you know. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's just, it's very gratifying. I think the problem is, well, we live in such a materialistic society that everybody just thinks you just need more, 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 you know? And I think a lot, the other thing is, <clears throat> you know, they're trying to keep up with the Joneses with social media and everything else. It makes everybody feel bad that the other guy's doing better than they are. Mm-hmm. And, um, <clears throat> We, we just don't need all that stuff. I mean, it really, to be happy, we need a lot less stuff. I mean, it was really driven home to me a couple of years ago. My wife and I, we go out to Santa Fe and Taos in the summer mm-hmm. and we stay in this old inn in Taos and we just spent the whole day reading books. Just, we, we got these great Adirondacks. We sat out in the front lawn of this old inn. That's a couple hundred years old building, you know, and we just sat out there and read all day. And I'm like, that's the best day I've had in eons. You know, why is that? No mm-hmm. distractions. 
No. Or it's also like, uh, you know, going out to your garage and wrenching on that bike. Um, it doesn't necessarily have like a productive, I mean, it is productive, but it's not productive in the sense that you're making any money on it, No, but it's something that's tangible that when you get it back together again and it, and it, sometimes you have to really study, you got to like go, go on YouTube or go find that climber manual and, and you guys do a good job running. Yeah. When you get it running, it's like the triumph of that. It can really be kind of, I, you know what I've gone into, I I don't know if I even told you this, but about a year ago, I got into air cooled VWs and you know, (laughs) that was my first car. (laughs) I never liked them when I was a kid. I never, because they were slow. I had a friend that had a 64 Beetle and we put a 140 horse Corvair in it. And all I remember (laughs) is you had to take apart the transaxle and reverse something because the rotation of the Corvair was the opposite of the VW. It would pull the wheels off the ground, but we didn't like VWs. You know, we had like massive V8s and four speeds and everything, but I got into these old VWs and and they're so simple. Mm -hmm. Um, it's fantastic. I've, I've redone three and sold them and I've got two more. I'm doing a 79 convertible and I got a 1960 completely original bug in bad condition that we got running Mm -hmm. after 40 years of Mm -hmm. sitting, you know, some, some good gas, new distributor, uh, clean the carb out, boom, fires right up. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's what a great car. That was, that was my, my first car. I paid a thousand dollars for a 72 Volkswagen bug and, and, and drove yeah. that thing every year up to, I went to school in New Hampshire and drove it up there and back every, every semester. And it's and amazing. It was, what a great car. It's so much character, so much, every journey yeah. was like, I always felt like I was in an airplane because it had the flat windscreen. It was the last year of the mm-hmm. flat windscreen in the dashboard and you're just like the, the, you know, shift lever is like vibrating and you're just 72 miles an hour flying along. It's just the experience of driving that totally beats beats any other, uh, no, it's always kind of, you're always kind of anxious. Like when, you know, like a belt blue in new Rochelle, you know, one time (laughs) got to watch all the gauges, what gauges you have. (laughs) Right. There's very, very few, but the temperature being a big one. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the, that to me is, Minus the worrying about belts, that is what we're trying. What, what, what? Not, not just what we're trying to do at Janus. It's what the the reason motorcycles are something that people like you can spend your entire life coming back to. Yeah. And when you know when you first started, you know you didn't have a whole lot of money. Sure. You're buying them for five bucks. Right. Now you can you can afford a nicer Rolls Royce or something like that. You know. But it's it's something that that anyone can get into. It's an activity that brings you that inner peace that you talk about and and it's something that um well that it's just it's, it's it's worth doing and it makes it makes other aspects of your life uh richer yeah it gets your priorities straight <laughs> yeah i mean the great thing about the janus is for eight or nine thousand dollars for the you know mm-hmm. entry level bike you get something that is totally unique you don't have to spend 20 or thirty thousand on it you get this thing that's super cool. That's, I mean, I'm not saying that's cheap. Obviously, I can go buy a Chinese 250 for like a quarter of that, but mm-hmm. it's really good. You can have one thing that's really good that didn't cost too much, that is beautiful, and you can actually use it when you want to. I mean, mm-hmm. that's a really unique value proposition, I think. Mm-hmm. What else can you buy for that kind of money that's that unique? And you can customize that, make it the way mm-hmm. you want it. Um, from the factory and you can even if yeah. you're not a 
if you're not a um, experienced mechanic or ho- right. even like an experienced hobbyist, you can do just about all the maintenance on that bike. I mean, even more advanced maintenance on it without any prior experience and with a simple YouTube video um, with simple tools that you can get at Harbor Freight. You don't even have to spend a whole lot on tools. Yeah, I you love Harbor You can be out there in your garage and you can, <laughs> you can, you can get that feeling that we've just been talking about of mm-hmm. inner peace or of taking control or having a bit of say. You yes. don't have to take it to a mechanic in right. what you're doing. Um, well, you couldn't make it any simpler than it is. I mean, a push rod singles. Yeah. Well, that's the goal though. I mean, and it's, yeah. it's something that I think is, is universal. Kind of like we were talking about earlier. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's maybe trying to remember a little bit about what is it that people are trying to do. That's why we, we title this podcast, Why We Ride. It's like right. we're trying to ask that question. It's, why do you ride? Why do you ride, Mark? I mean, what, what is it that, that, you, that keeps you coming back? And, and I don't think at least for me and for many of the people I talk to, it isn't going 120 miles an hour. Now that that's cool. I mean, I've done yeah. it. It's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's right. dangerous, but it, you know, it's great. But like the thing that keeps me coming back is that like transformative quality that it has, um, that allows you to have well, those triumphs. It's meditate. It's a meditative experience because you mm-hmm. can't be on your phone, even though it's illegal to do so. People are doing it or fooling with your radio or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just riding along, and it's it, it, and you can get into your zone like that, mm-hmm. and then just experiencing the weather. And you know how when you go down in a valley, it's warm, and then you go down in the valley and you feel it's cool, and then you come out of it and yeah. it's warm again. It's I mean, so immediate. The, the smells. It's like holy shit! I'm alive. I'm still actually alive. You know, I'm not living in a simulation. That's interesting. You mentioned the zone. I'm, I'm, I'm writing right now a little bit on thinking about that in relation to motorcycles. And mm-hmm. I think you've given a great description of it. You know, like, especially that, like, it's a wonderful example. And you dip down into a little valley or something like that. And all of a sudden the temperature changes and you just suddenly realize, oh, wow. Or you smell, I remember I was driving, riding up in Michigan one time and I rode by this house and they were obviously like cooking a pizza or something. Cause I could just mm-hmm. like, I was like, Oh, that smells good. <laughs> yeah. If you were in your car, you wouldn't even have noticed it, man. Yeah. It's just such a, so. it, it, you feel like, Oh, you know, as you say, it sort of brings back these memories from your youth smelling the mm-hmm. grass that was just cut and just mm-hmm. the whole thing. You feel almost like you're getting away with something. You know, when you ride, <laughs> I do, you know, I guess probably because I, I was riding around when I was 12 without a license, yeah. you know, right. those are my early memories. Who, we all get, when we get on a bike, we are getting away with something. We're getting mm-hmm. away with something that's harder and harder to find, um, yeah. in our sort of insulated, um, for whatever reason, you know, it's becoming more and more insulated or, or it's becoming more and more, um, obsessed with that sort of. Uh, individualism that we talked about with, you know, like everything having to be, you know, we're always being driven and we're, you know, we, we don't have that time to just kind of find that inner peace that you're talking about. So that's it's valuable. I'm much it's happier. <laughs> uh, that's all I can say. I mean, it's a constant effort, you know, I mean, if you're not growing and you're not examining yourself, I think a lot of the problem is a lot of people think if you're good at something and you make a lot of money doing it, you should just keep doing that. 
And I don't know exactly why that's our value system as a culture, but why do you have to do that? Do you need all that crap? Maybe you should live mm-hmm. on less. You know, I've even had thoughts like maybe I would have been smarter if I worked at the post office. I don't know. You know? <laughs> well, okay. That's a great, that's a great segue kind of to, to wrap up our conversation and to, to talk my last, I have so many more questions that I want, that I wanted to, but this has just been a lovely rambling conversation. Um, but, I, uh, I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, you titled the book confessions of an entrepreneur. And when I, mm-hmm. as a literature major, when I, when I th- when I hear confessions, I think either St. Augustine or, um, what Rousseau. <laughs> so this you know seems a little more, <laughs> this seems a little more saintly than Rousseau. Uh, but <laughs> looking back, I mean, uh-huh. like when you titled it confessions, how is it a confession? And, and as you look back, what is it? Has it been a reflection on, on, on your life and all the oh, things you've done? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you, you know, you've got to, I don't want to say I always want to look in the rear view mirror. I do want to look forward. I mean, I try to be an optimist. I consider myself an optimist, but I do think you've got to be conscious of the mistakes you made. And hopefully if I can share some of those with people, maybe they can just skip that part and learn from my experience you know, we all have to learn from each other's experiences. If we're smart, we don't want to have to make all the same mistakes everybody else did who preceded us. And exactly, so that, like we were talking about with, uh, you, know, you know, not necessarily having to start from scratch, that tabula yeah, rasa. Right, exactly. Starting from scratch is really hard too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's easier to start with something. I, I like the mm-hmm. constraints. I'd much rather do a renovation than a new build any day. I just like it. I don't know mm-hmm. why I like the constraints, though. You we know? could have a whole conversation just about <laughs> constraints. I think that would just—I mean, it's—it's it's so it's so uh, um, freeing, really. Mm-hmm. Um, but well, uh, confessions of an entrepreneur: simple wisdom for starting, building, and running a business. Mark's new book: um, where Amazon everywhere. Amazon, that's best place. Amazon. Yeah. Um, We've got an audio uh, version out now too, Richard just oh, came okay. out. All right. So, um, well, it, uh, I recommend it. Uh, it's a really neat book. If, even if you're not an entrepreneur, it's got some, uh, great life lessons and a, and a good story. I think it's, uh, someone who's done a lot of different things in their life owned a lot of motorcycles and cars and done some, maybe in, in your words, you know, done some things you, you're really proud of and maybe some that you just, you, you wish you'd skipped over, but um, it's lessons <laughs> lessons that other people can can learn from. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, like us that, all, <laughs> there's light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train coming. Um, yeah, is all I can say. You know, everybody hates getting older, but it's liberating too. You know, mm-hmm. you just <laughs> feeling like you just don't have to prove anything anymore and impress anybody is uh, very liberating. So. Well. That's a, that's a good way, good way to wrap us up. But, uh, Mark, um, I think we'll have more conversations in the future, but, uh, thank you so much for, for, uh, sharing this time with us and, uh, enjoy your, keep enjoying your housing on and keep carrying on. Thanks, Richard. It's been great. All right. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.